Good morning. Um, welcome again. Um, my name is Jeremy, and today we're going to start really by uh, where we left off last week. Who was here last week? Quite a few of you. So we had a guy called Doug Fell um, come and speak to us from all the way from South Africa, and he was looking at our identity um, in Christ, or rather, he was talking about the idea that we've now there is now no longer condemnation in Christ. There's no judgment because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And one thing that really um, struck with, uh, stayed with me uh, that Doug shared was when he said, in his church, they don't speak to people's behaviors. He said, we don't speak into behavior management. At our church, we speak into people's identity, into how they see themselves, and in how they see God. And as we speak into their identity and their beliefs about God, and those identity, their identity has changed, as they start to understand more about who they are in Christ, then their behaviors are changed. And so for that reason, this morning, we're going to continue on that same theme, looking at our identity in Christ. And as we unpack what it really means to have identity in Christ, we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to live that identity out in the world. Um, first of all, then, why identity? Why is identity so important? The first thing I would say is that identity forms behavior. How you see yourself, your, your self-perception, directs your behavior. I'll give you an example from my life. Um, I have an older brother. He's about five years older than me. And when I was about 11 or 12, my parents uh, said to me, uh, Jeremy, Jonathan, your brother, he's the intelligent one. You are the hard worker. Now, whether or not that was a nice thing to say to your son, you'd leave you to make your own judgment. But what was really interesting is how much that went on to form my identity. How much I kind of took, I went, okay, I'm, I'm the hard worker. And I worked really hard at school. Every exam, I was months of revision, working hard. Every time I kind of came up against something that was challenging, I was, um, my solution was just kind of work harder. And, and now looking back, I can say, actually, that label that my parents gave me, that I kind of went, yep, that's me, really formed my behavior. The identity that I had directed my behavior. So that's the first reason if our identity forms our behavior. And so it's important then we understand what is our identity in Christ if we're Christians. Secondly, um, many of us from time to time will attach ourselves or, or grab hold of identities which are around the value or significance that we think we bring to the world. So let me give you a few examples. We might say, uh, you know, I'm the successful one, or I'm the intelligent one, or I'm the funny one, or um, I'm the grade A student as someone I, um, I know describe themselves. And, and, we, and we kind of build these because that's where we think we have value or significance. And so we want to bring value to the world. We, we want people to think we're valuable. And so we, we kind of hold on to those identities. The, the problem with that is that those identities then depend on our performance. So if you're the intelligent one, uh, maybe you thought of yourself like that, and then you got to university and you met lots of other people who are intelligent, suddenly you're no longer the intelligent one. Or you're the funny one, you've got a group of friends, and then suddenly someone else joins your friendship group who's funnier than you. And you're like, well, who am I? What, what's my contribution now when the, I'm not the funny one anymore? And so we end up chasing these identities, the, chasing these performance-based identities. So those don't work, and I think we have to come back to our identity in Christ. So another reason to look at it this morning. The third reason that we need to look at it is I think many of us are dealing with an inner critical voice. Many of us are battling lies about ourselves, that we, that we tell ourselves that things like, oh, you're rubbish, you can't do it, you're worthless, um, you're not good enough, maybe even you don't deserve to live. These, these lies can be so corrosive and so crippling and, and, and obviously untrue. And so we have to 
uh, learn how to battle those lies, how to say, well, actually, no, that's not true. This is who I am in Christ. And so for that reason, we need to look at the idea of identity in Christ this morning. If you're not a Christian, you might say, well, what, how does this apply to me? Because this is all about your identity in Christ. Well, I hope as we hear this, as we unpack this, you'll start to see what it looks like to apply Christian truth to our understanding of who we are. And so I hope you'll still find this relevant and see, this, see the power of Christian truth applied to our lives. So I'm going to read now from 1 Peter 2, verse 9 to 12. If you want to open your Bibles, I have no idea what page it is, if someone wants to... 1767. 66. So, yeah, lots of numbers here. 1 Peter, the first, 1 Peter 2, 9, verse 9 to 12. So in this passage, Peter really wants to make sure that the, the Christians that he's writing to understand their identity in Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So I think Peter's, re- as I said, Peter's really keen to make sure that the Christians understand who they are in Christ. I'm going to unpack this in three, three kind of key ways. That we have a new family, that we have a new, call- uh, new nature, and that we have a new calling. So firstly, new family. As you can see, in this, in this passage, Peter's got a number of descriptions of the Christians he's writing to where they're collective. So he describes them as a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race. Um, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. All of them are plural identifiers. They're, they're kind of describing a whole group of people, not just individuals. And in fact, we see this throughout the New Testament that often uh, Peter or Paul or whoever's writing to the, um, their audience in the New Testament in the letters are speaking to a collective. They're speaking to people as a group. And uh, you think about the other ones like body of Christ. Uh, In Ephesians, it talks about the household of God. You kind of get the idea that that we are a collection. We're not just a collection of individuals, but a community of brothers and sisters. That the identity in the New Testament is communal. That we're actually not always breaking ourselves down to our atomized individualistic worldview, but actually we are a family intrinsically linked together. So the first implication of what it means to have an identity in Christ is that we are a family together in Christ. Um, this means, this, for example, is why when you go to a new country, and some of you are not, this is not your native country, when you come to a new country and you go to a church there and you find real followers of Jesus, actually often you'll have more in common with those people than people from your own country who don't follow Jesus, if that makes sense. That actually, we are a family connected by Christ and that, we have, that makes us have more in common than almost we, and with other people from other backgrounds or other contexts. Um, This is why we, as a church, prioritize our community. This is why we put such an emphasis on life groups, these new communities that we're just starting, um, a couple of. um, That's why we so value spending time together, because this is part of who we are in Christ, that we are a family of God. That's why Peter, in the previous chapter, uh, chapter 1, says this to the the, uh, people he's writing to. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, 
for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He's able to say that to them because they are a family, because they are a family, because they're brothers and sisters. Loving each other is kind of what you do when you're brothers and sisters. Maybe that wasn't your experience in your family, but in God's family, that's what we do. We love each other. And I, I think it's hard to um, preach about this without giving you a picture of what it looks like. Um, I said to Graham, I was already going to embarrass him, Where are Graham and Lucy. Um, but basically, last year, we were, um, a few weeks ago, sorry, we were moving house and... Uh, I don't know how Graham and Lucy knew this, but basically uh, they just came around our house without even asking and said, like, we want to come and help you clean up. And my brother and his wife were there. And can you, I wasn't even there. I wasn't even helping clear up, um, clear up the house <laughs> that we were moving from. Um, but can you imagine my brother and his wife, like, um, they're not Christians. They're, and they're just like, wait a second, why are two people from your church just come around and said, yeah, hi, we'll come around and help you clean up your house before you give it back to your landlord. That kind of loving countercultural service is so distinctive. It's so... Um, different in a, in a city like London, where actually many people, no disrespect, but London kind of encourages an individualistic approach to life. You're not necessarily living in community. You're kind of about your own thing, getting up, going to work, coming home, all about your own thing. And yet actually here, Christians live a very different way. They live uh, in a family-oriented way, um, looking out for each other and sincerely loving each other. So then my question is for you, are you all in? Are you investing in your family? Are you spending time with your brothers and sisters? Are you part of a life group? Are you, is your, does your life reflect your identity as a brother and sister and as part of um, God's family? Uh, if this, maybe you say, yes, uh, this is true, but I want to make it more of the case. Simple question this week, who could you invest in? Who could you ask out for a coffee? Who could you say, you know, I'm actually going to get to know people. I'm going to spend time with people, with my family. And I know some people... Uh, can be easily scared of community, scared of being vulnerable, scared of opening yourself up and having to invest in people's lives or, or share your life with people. What I would simply say is, is you belong here, that we are your family. We, it's kind of meant to be that we spend time together. So we want you, you're valued in our presence. You're valued as part of our family um, in Christ. So that's the first part. Uh, secondly, what does this mean on an individual level then? What does it mean to be part of God's family for, for you as an individual? Well, firstly, it's an identity that you didn't choose. At the beginning of this passage, Peter tells um, the people he's writing to that they're a chosen race. So this is not an identity we've chosen. This has come to us. And think about when you're part of a family. Most people, well, everybody who's part of a family is either born into that family or adopted into that family. So we don't choose the identity in Christ that we've, um, we've received, but instead um, God has worked to bring us into his family. Think about it from the, um, what we were talking about last week, the idea that Christ's death on the cross has made it possible through, through um, him taking our sin and us taking his righteousness for us to be adopted into God's family. So it's that great exchange on the cross that makes it possible for us to enter into his family. We've been adopted in. It's, and, and it's why God the Father can say to us, as he said to Jesus, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And from that, from that identity as God's children, we can live out that identity. We can live distinctively in the world. It's actually a really crucial point to understand that this identity is not something that we choose. It's not something that is dependent on our performance. Think about all those identities I mentioned before, whether you think of yourself as a successful person or intelligent person or a popular person. Those identities depend on your performance. Think about if you consider yourself a grade A student. Well, then, to be a grade A student, you need to keep getting A grades. 
It's dependent on that performance. Whereas actually in Christ, our identity is because of what he's done. And so there's no jeopardy. There's no kind of constantly chasing going, oh, is that true still? Am I still a child of God? Actually, no, you are already in the family. You're already adopted. And it is not dependent on how you live today, this moment today, as to whether or not you're a child of God. And that has huge implications. This um, identity as a child of God is your value. It's your significance. It's the significance that you are searching for in all those other identities. Where, um, think about value for a moment. Value is determined by the value that someone puts on it. Say, for example, um, you, we have a vase at home. Got, let's say we got it in a charity shop, a uh, 10-pound vase. But say we had a friend come over um, and look, take one look at the vase and realize that actually that's a really valuable vase in, in their opinion. They were willing to pay 300 pounds for it. Then we'd say that vase is worth... 300 pounds. So value is determined by the value that someone is willing to put on something, if that makes sense. And so in this way, our value is determined by the fact that God desires to, that we would be his people, that we are people of his own possession. Our value is because he desires us. In Exodus 20, he describes himself as a jealous God. He's jealous for us. He desires us. He wants, him for, wants us for himself, a people of his own possession. And the implications of this are huge. This, is, this should transform the way we approach life. Um, say you're someone who, who finds your identity in success. Say you've got through life up to now, always being successful. So you think of yourself as a kind of successful person. And then say one day you fail. When you fail, this truth is what the bedrock that you stand on, which says, actually, it's okay that I failed because I'm already loved by God. I'm a child of God. Um, or say you're someone who thinks of yourself as a popular person, then one day you get rejected or... Quite frankly, even if you don't think of yourself as a popular person, rejection hurts. And it's in that moment that we can say, no, I'm already God's child. I'm already loved by you. So it doesn't matter that I'm rejected by that person. And this came um, home to me quite um, in a really meaningful way last year. I've um, worked for a startup business for about three years, uh, four, about four and a half years now, I think. And um, I have a position of leadership in that startup. I was there right at the beginning, and I now, um, and all that time, I've basically led a team of people. And then last year, I was basically someone who reported to me was promoted above me, and I was no longer part of the central leadership team of that business. Now, I know it sounds silly, but that had become a big part of my identity. That I'd really come to believe, yeah, I'm part of this startup business, I'm leading people, I'm a, you know, whatever, not a big shot, but, you know, I, I kind of got, really enjoyed it, and it became part of who I was. And then suddenly to lose that, to not be part of the inner circle anymore, I always thought of myself as kind of the CEO's advisor, and, and now not to be doing that. Um, <laughs> sorry, that's just pride. <laughs> um, but it, was, it, was really, it really hurt me. And, um, and even the guy who's promoted above me, like with the time we talked about it, I said, I will only be able to do this because of Christ, because of who, he, because of who I am in Christ. And I know that actually my value is not from being... Mr. Big Shot, being the CEO's advisor, my value is in being your, his son. And that's the, the bedrock on which I stand. That's the life jacket amongst the, uh, the stormy seas of, seas of life that I can retain and hold on to. And, that, and absolutely, that was exactly my case. Every time I felt resentful or annoyed or, or hurt, I was able to say, no, I'm your child of God. I'm, I'm your child, God. I'm here to follow you. I'm here just to serve you and to worship with my work. And I'm not defined by that role, the, the role that I have here. It was really powerful um, for me at the time. 
Ironically, I think when we get this, we'll actually become less self-obsessed and less self-focused. It might sound like we're just talking about how we see ourselves, but actually, when you understand who you are in Christ, you're no longer seeking to find your validation and value in how other people perceive you. So, in your interactions with other people, you're not thinking, "Oh, when will you say well done?" and you know how good I am, because actually, you know who you are in Christ already.、Um, Similarly, this is the weapon to fight those critical voices with. When you, when, it, when, when you have a critical voice in your head that says you're worthless, you've got nothing to value, nothing to bring. Say, say you've got a critical voice in your head which says you're rubbish at your job and you can't do it and you're and you're awful. Actually, for you to be able to say, well, that may or may not be the case. How good I am at my job, but I know that I'm a child of God and I know that I'm loved by Him. And it doesn't doesn't matter in this moment how good or not I am at this job. I just have to serve you, God. That is a powerful truth in which you can stand, and a, bat- uh, uh, a shield of truth against the enemy and his lies. And I don't think this will come overnight. I think this is a daily act of reminding yourself of who you are in Christ、um, and reminding yourself、um, of who He is. So we're part of this family, and, and、um, when you're part of a family, you also start to look more like that family. You start to,、uh, well, actually, to be honest. From birth, you look like that family. In my family, to be part of the Moses family is to have certain characteristics. You know, it's to be loud, aggressive, opinionated.、Uh, when Jen got married to my family, they said, "If you get married to a Moses man, you will become loud and aggressive." And so far, <laughs> if you've met Jen, you'll know that's just simply not true, which is wonderful, and we hope that she can stay that way. <laughs> Um, despite being married to me,、um, but th- but this is this is、uh, true of all families. Whatever your family is, there are characteristics of what it means to be in your family. And in Christ too, in co- in God's family, we also take on this new nature. We look like、um, Christ's family. We look like His children. Now. If you look through this、um, book of Peter, what's really interesting is how much Peter has an emphasis on God's family being holy. In this in this passage we're looking at now, it says he calls them a holy nation. Earlier on,、um, he says to them, "As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, 'You shall be holy, for I am holy.'" So Peter has this. Big emphasis on these people living a holy life, being holy. And many of us read those verses, and the first reaction is intimidation, fear. We go, "Well, that, that's not me. I'm not living a holy life." If you saw me, I'm messy, I'm angry, I despair. All these things. That's not describing me. I, I'm not. I'm not this、uh, holy nation. I'm not living a holy life. Whilst that may be true, that there is sin in your life. These verses should actually give us hope. We should take the precisely the opposite reaction to them, because these verses are describing who you are in Christ. First, they describe what you're going to be one day: totally holy, totally righteous, not sinful at all, in heaven with God for eternity. And actually, they also describe you now: that you are Christ's holy nation. That actually, when you become a follower of Jesus, your character, your nature changes. I know this is hard to believe for some of you, but let me read to you、um, this description in two Corinthians chapter five. For now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away; behold, the new has come. There's a new nature. You are a new creation. There's a new character, 
God has put his spirit in us and who is changing us and aligning us to become more like Christ. Now, as I said, many of us struggle to believe this because you say, well, if you look at my life, I'm, no, I'm, I'm not very different, maybe not different to how I was before as a Christian, or I don't look any different to the world around me. And actually, I think the New Testament has a really, is really clear on this. It, it, it's sanguine about who we are. It says, yes, you are sinful. It says in John 1, 1 John 1, 1.8, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But at the same time, the New Testament also puts a great emphasis on the fact that we are saints, that we are God's holy people, that we are a new creation. In 2 Peter, it describes us as partakers of the divine nature. So we are substantively different. That is who we will become. And it's also, if we read backwards to now, it is who we are. It's a kind of combination of the now and the not yet. We will one day totally be holy and righteous and everything about our lives will be perfect in the terms of the way we live and we'll be living in, in perfect holiness. But actually read that back now and we are becoming those people and that is who you are. That is, that is your intrinsic nature. Which means that actually that sin that is so often part of our lives is not who we are. That's why, that's why Peter can speak to the Christians and tell them, to put away sinful behavior, the passions of your former ignorance. That sin that often goes in our lives is actually belongs to our former life. It belongs to our former way of doing things. This is not a message that says, go on, don't worry, just you're holy, you can do anything you want. It says, actually, that sin, that was who you are, but that's not who you are now. So yes, there will be sin, but it's not who you are. Um, I think sometimes we focus so much on the truth that we're sinful that we forget this other truth, that we are actually saints in Christ. And that's why um, Paul is able to speak to the um, Corinthian church in uh, the first Corinthians chapter 6 and tell them, uh, he basically lists off this long list of, of sinful identities and then says, that is what you were. So I'll just, I'll just read to you. Um, it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When he writes that to them, he's not saying, such were some of you, and now you'll never sin. He's saying, such were some of you. That was who you were, but that's not who you are now. So he's not saying that you will never lie. Uh, one of those is lies, probably, or well, greedy. You're never going to be greedy. He's not saying you're never, that there are things there that you say, yes, that is true that I do those things, but that's not who you are. And this speaks to the wider picture that the Christian life is a journey of transformation in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5, uh, chapter Chapter 5, verse 16, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So empowered by the Holy Spirit, you can overcome sin in your life. You, can, you are on this journey of transformation one day to become that perfect, holy, righteous person that got um, in heaven with God for eternity. And so um, we see this in Peter, in the writer of the letter we're looking at. Think about Peter before uh, at, the resur- at the crucifixion. He was, he was so scared of what people thought of him, he denied Jesus three times. And then yet, fast forward to the beginning of the book of Acts, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, he was the most courageous man. He was standing in front of the Sanhedrin saying, like, we're not going to follow you, we're going to follow God. And then even he writes to the, letter of the, uh, to the people in this, in this letter and says to them, um, 
Be courageous, like live a different, a distinctive life um, in, to the people who are around you. So Peter has seen this dramatic change in his life. In the power of the Holy Spirit, God is changing him to become more like the person that he already is. Does that make sense? So what does this mean for us then? Well, two things. One of us, one of this is some of us need to embrace this truth more. We're very, uh, we know that we're sinful, but we need, but... If we just see ourselves as sinful, then our behavior will revert to type. We'll say, well, I'm sinful, so I'll sin. And it's kind of part of our nature. Well, I'm sinful, so this is what I do. And you might think there's no way out. Actually, we need to hear the other parallel truth here, that you are saints, that this is not who you are. The sin doesn't belong on you. And so this this will be a key weapon in fighting a battle with sin. Secondly, some of us need to live in the expectation and the power of the Holy Spirit to change us and transform us. Now, some of you may have lived in such a long cycles of sin that you say, there's no way out. I can't break out of this sin. And I would just say, actually, you must believe it's possible. You must believe that actually God in the power of the Holy Spirit is able to transform you to become more like himself. Sometimes as Christians, we're almost more aware of our sin than when we were not a Christian. So we say, I've gone backwards rather than forwards. Actually, that's the Holy Spirit often convicting us, making us aware of the, of the reality that, yeah, we are way more sinful than we thought we were. But the difference is that we know and we believe and we trust in God's power to be able to change us. So with this new nature comes a new heart. And with that new heart comes our new calling, which is our third point, my third point about identity. We live in a city obsessed with callings. We live, many of you are graduating students or, or thinking about finishing university at some point. And, and already, I suspect, even in February, and I'm sure you're graduating in a few months, um, there'll be lots of discussion on campus. Lots of um, saying, what, what am I going to do? What's the job for me? And we're saying, how can I find a job that has meaning and purpose and impact? Many of us are in jobs and we're thinking exactly the same thing. We're saying, what's my calling? What can I do where I transform the world and get meaning and, and enjoy, enjoy my job? And this is something that you know, Christian and non-Christian people are grappling with. And uh, I think that there's a danger when we do that, that we're overloading work with more meaning and purpose than it sometimes has. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we can't find jobs that are enjoyable, jobs that, where we say this is something that God's led me to and God leads us and directs us into different vocations. But the difference is we may be looking for our work to give us more meaning and purpose than it actually can deliver. The Bible talks about work that it's going to be toil. It's going to be hard work. Genesis 3, you know, it's not perfect. We're working in post-fall, work is hard. It's going to be hard work sometimes. It's going to be difficult. It's, not going, to be, it's going to be drudgery. And, and so we need to see that other parallel truth um, in our aspiration to find our calling. So if work can't deliver, if work doesn't give us the sense of calling and vocation that we, that, we, that we want it to, what's the answer? What's the answer to this existential angst that so many in our society feel? And I would say Peter presents a very different picture of our calling in Christ. And it's actually much bigger than our work. He says to, to the, uh, the people he's writing to, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, oh, sorry, no, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you have a calling to proclaim the excellencies of God and to, um, to revel uh, in the fact that he's called you out of darkness and into light. This is our primary calling, to worship God um, with our whole lives. And so 
So we have this calling, this calling above everything else to proclaim God's excellencies, to thank him that he's brought us out of darkness and into light, to glorify him for the new identity that we've received. So we no longer have to find our, um, so much significance in our work to the point um, that we were saying, oh, look, I've, I found my calling, this is it, I'm this for life. We don't have to do that because we say, actually, no, my calling is just to worship you, God. My, God, my calling is just to, to do the work that's in front of me and to worship you with that work, to enjoy you and to love you and to praise you. Interesting parallel, um, in Luke 10, there's, um, Jesus sends out the disciples and they come back to him. And when they come back to him, he says, essentially, don't glory in what you've achieved. Instead, glory or, or, or be joyful in that in your name is written in the book of life. So, he says, so they've come back, they're happy. They, say, they said, the demons are subject to us in your name. Like we cast out demons in your name, God. And he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So he's saying, do not rejoice in your, your worldly achievements. Do not rejoice and say, look, I found the perfect vocation and the calling for myself. Instead, rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven. This is such Uh, good news for us. It's actually releasing because it means we don't have to worry about finding the perfect job. We can worship him in the the menial, the mundane, and the calling doesn't depend on you. This worship that our lives are about comes from God. He is the one who brings that worship in our hearts and so it doesn't depend on us. We can ask him to fill us with his spirit and to change our hearts and to give us that heart of worship. So if we're in Christ then, we have a new identity and that new identity is that God has given you a new family. That new family means a new community and a new identity as his son or daughter. It means you don't have to chase after these other things. You don't have to define yourself by being successful or intelligent or attractive because you know who you are in Christ. God has placed his spirit in you to make it possible for you to overcome sin. He's made you holy. He's made you righteous. God has released you from this existential angst to, to try and prove yourself and find that perfect job that fulfills you because you can worship him in the everyday. And as we embrace this like, new identity that God's given us, we, can li- we will live differently. We will look different to the world around us. And that's what Peter's getting at in the next verse. So um, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So out of this new identity, out of this new um, creation that we've become, we live differently. And that's what he's getting at when he calls them sojourners and exiles. He says to them, now sojourners and exiles are people who are not living in their home country. The Israelites were sojourners in the desert. So they'd come out of Egypt and they were sojourning in the desert on the way to the promised land. So this wasn't their home. This was their temporary uh, place. And that's the same with us. We're, this is not our permanent home on earth. We're living temporarily, temporarily here before heaven comes down on earth. So we don't belong here in the way that we did previously. So as we, as we uh, live out this new identity on earth, we're going to look different and we have to be comfortable with looking different. So that might be, for example, um, you're able to celebrate others. You're able to celebrate the success of others because now you know who you are in Christ. So you're a student and you're not just thinking about your grades, but you're you're enthusiastically celebrating how your fellow students are doing because you're no longer so focused on your own success. Or it might look that you're 
um, able to admit your weaknesses now at work. You're able to say, yeah, actually, I am not very good at this because you know who you are in Christ, and it gives you a freedom to say, I'm not Um, I'm able to admit that I'm weak because I don't have to be the best. I don't have to kind of put on a show. I can admit my sin because I know the Holy Spirit can change me and transform me. So we're able to live differently in the world. Now, some of us look at the idea of living differently and that intimidates us because we want to fit in with the world. We want to look like everybody else. Like That's just such a normal human um, desire. We want to... um, and maybe that's even the desire some of, sometimes of churches and to live down the, uh, to, sorry, to minimize the differences they have with the world, to try and say, look, we just want to be relevant. We don't want to necessarily be different. Um, that's one danger. The other danger is that some of us just want to remove ourselves from the world, that we, and that we don't want to actually engage with the world because we say, well, it's so hard to be different. It's so hard to live around my colleagues and to actually say, no, I won't go out and get drunk with you. Or it's so hard to, uh, you know, not to get involved in all the same jokes and all the other things. I'm, I'm not going to go into specifics. I don't want to, um, don't really have time. But the, um, <laughs> but, the, but the idea is that we, sometimes we find it so hard to do that that we withdraw. And that's been a historic Christian error as well. Just as it's an error to try and look like the culture you're in and to ape them exactly, the other error is to, become, uh, is to withdraw and never engage with people. But in this verse, Peter tells them to keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so when they speak against, against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Well, if you're not around them, they're not going to see your good deeds. So you, can't, you have to, there's a, a call to an active engagement with the world, an active living among people, uh, spending time with people, spending time, opening your life up to people who wouldn't call themselves Christians and spending, um, you know, just, just having friends basically and investing your life in people and so they will see the transformation that God is doing. So the, the most exciting thing, the, way, what the point I want to end with is as we live differently in the world, as we embrace the new identity that God's given us. Actually, the wonderful news is that some people will be attracted to Christ. And this is what this passage says. So so it talks about living differently, being exiles and sojourners. And then at the end, he says that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there'll be two responses. Reading this passage, I take it there'll be two responses. There'll be some who speak against you as evildoers. We will live different. If we live differently in this world, there'll be some people who say, you are an evildoer. Maybe because you don't conform to the pattern of this world. You don't look like us. You, there are things you believe which we don't believe, and that's, that's difficult for us. And actually, you're kind of evil in our eyes. So that, that's almost like to be expected. That's not a bad thing in some respects. A mark of success is, is not that no one speaks against you as an evildoer. Neither should we obviously going around just trying to get people to speak against us as evildoers either. But that's the first response. The second response is that some may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I take that. You can't glorify God unless you worship him. You, can't, like, you don't glorify God against your will. I, th- I think he's talking about the idea that some of these people will worship God at the final day uh, when God comes back to judge the living and the dead. The idea is that actually some people, when they see the way you live, when they see the distinctive lives that we're living, when they see us living out this wonderful new identity in Christ, they will be drawn to him. So as they see us living this loving, serving community, when they see Graham and Lucy come round our house to come and help us clean for no reason and just because out of the goodness of their hearts, and they'll be like, what? 
How's that happening? Why is that happening? Because there's a new power at work in this community. God's Holy Spirit is bringing a sense of love and community. We, um, at our wedding, I may have said this before, I can't remember. At our wedding, we had like 20 ushers, most of whom were our Christian friends who were willing to give up their whole day. And both our brothers and sisters, me and Jen's brother and sister who aren't Christian, were looking at it going, this is mental. Like they said, they described it as like high indentured slavery. And they were like, why, why are you asking your friends to, and of course all our friends were like, this is great. We're so willing to give up our wedding to serve you and to love you. And that is the power of Christ working in them, the love that we experience together. So people will see that as we live distinctively in community. People will see it as we celebrate others' success, as we're no longer obsessed with our own performance and building an identity around being funny, or you know, we're, we're encouraging others, we're celebrating others. Um, people will see it as we're changed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, my colleagues used to say to me sometimes, you need to go off and pray, because they would see that when I prayed, when I spent time with God at work, that my heart was changed. And, they, and so sometimes if my, um, they, would say, they would say, okay, Jeremy, I think you need to go off and pray. They, they would see, in fact, one of my friends, one of my colleagues even told me he started meditating as a result of me praying. And I thought, okay, let's we'll move, move one step in the right direction. Um, my point is, we're not that request, I'm not asking you to live perfect lives among the people that you spend time with. That's not the calling here because part of the calling, calling is showing grace. It's just saying, look, actually, I'm a broken individual. I'm, I'm broken in these different ways, I, and you can see that, but then transparently sharing your life with them so that they also see the times when God is at work. How many times do you filter your conversation when you're talking to your non-Christian friends and you tell them, yeah, this has happened, but you, don't, you leave out the part where God had done something in your life? You know, like, and I just think that's so important that we can be transparent and honest with our friendships, and as we do that, people will see God's work in our lives. So then, this is, uh, this, is what, this is the life that God's called us to. This is his encouragement to us, that we have received a new family in Christ. We've been made children of God. We've become new people. We've become a new creation in Christ. We've received a new calling to worship him. Let us, glory, let us rejoice. Let us be thankful for the new calling we've received. Let us, let's, spend, let's turn to worship in a moment to thank him for the new people that he's made us. Before we do that, I wonder if we just want to take a moment just to reflect at the end as when I finish speaking. Is there any thinking going on in your mind? Is there any wrong thinking? Are there ways you think about yourself that don't reflect this new identity that Christ has given you? So have a think about that for a moment. And as we do that, as we respond to that, and let's not be afraid to live differently. Let's not be afraid to go out into the world and to, to be the new creations that God has called us to be. Actively engaging with people and letting people see what God is doing.